and I was involved with the Gallup Strengths Summit. It's the first one that they've ever had. And the reason why I am there is because I am a Gallup certified strengths coach. And one of the things I love doing is working with people to help them identify what their strengths are. And <clears throat> great. And then how to take those strengths and put those strengths into action so that they become real talents. And so I'm there, and I'm in the process of talking to a number of people who are there. And um, Jim Clifton, the founder of the, of the son of the founder of the company, gets up to speak, and he is going to do his his opening talk. And I wondered how he would deal with the opening talk. Here's Jim Clifton, and here's the Strength Finder. I wondered how he would address his opening talk. Gallup has got their finger on the pulse of things all over the world. And he gets up and he says, our world is falling apart. I was surprised that he said that. Our world is falling apart. And he began to identify some of the reasons why our world is falling apart and what he thinks we ought to do about it. Now, I got back from that Gallup Strength Summit, and it got me thinking. What are people saying about the state of the world these days? What are they saying about it? And so I started reading, and I came up with five common things that a lot of people seem to be saying about the state of the world that we're in. Five megatrends. Number one is the global diaspora. I don't know if you realize this, but there are more people on the move than ever before in human history. According to one uh, website, 65.5 million people around the world have been displaced only in the past several years. There's an obvious reason for this. One of them is socialism. For instance, the people in Venezuela who are going on tourist trips to buy toilet paper and essential necessities to take back to Venezuela, the failure of socialism. And the other, obviously, is the issue with radical Islam and millions of people who are, who are traveling because Islam is said you convert or you die. Global diaspora, more than, more than ever before. Another one is global terrorism. And you know, in, in this 24-hour news cycle, we see something happening in Nice, France, or we see something happening in Orlando. We immediately know about it. We are immediately drawn into the horror of it. There are ISIS investigations in all 50 states right now. I, don't, I was surprised when I heard that. Uh, and the sad thing is that People seem to be saying, like the mayor of London, that, you know, this may be the new normal. Live with it. Deal with it. A third trend is the global persecution of the church. And what's interesting about this is the church outside the West is growing exponentially. By 2025, people estimate that we'll have the, the Bible will be in every language around the globe. The church is growing like crazy in the 
global south, for instance. At the same time, persecution is also growing significantly around the world. And this persecution is causing Christians to either say, I wasn't all that serious and I'm not going to go that way anymore. Or it's saying, I'm going to be totally committed. There's a lot of people around the world who said, I've made the choice, I'm going to be totally committed. Next megatrend is regional instability. I was at an event with our Congressman Jim Bridenstine a while back, and Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense under George Bush, was there. And somebody asked the question, what is the most difficult trend in the world? He said, you know, it's not, it's not just any one thing, it's, it's all these little micro-decisions that get made in places you never heard about. He said people will make decisions there that will affect Russia, that will affect Iran, that will affect some of the global powers. It's all these regional instabilities that have the potential to draw people into international conflict. And then the fifth one, dependence upon the iCloud. You know, we have given over control of the internet now to somebody outside of our country. Now, there's a lot of people who have different viewpoints on that. But what I know is that when my computer is down for a day, I, I'm, I'm like, I gotta solve this problem. If you've had identity theft take place, you know how devastating identity theft is. If the iCloud somehow goes down for 24, 48, for a week, I mean, uh, that is incredibly disruptive. So I go back to Jim Clifton. He says, it seems as if the world is falling apart. And indeed it does. So he asked the question, um, where is Jesus in all this? If Jesus is the risen king, if he is in control, if all authority is vested in Jesus, where is, where is Jesus in all this? Why aren't things getting better? Why are things trending toward turmoil? And there are people who consider the claims of Christ and they hear about the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And they say, well, if that's the case, why does it see that the, seem that the world is getting so messed up and seems to be getting worse? I want to focus on that this morning. And what I want to, want to begin with is where Jesus is right now. Where is he right now? Well, here's Jesus' claim. Jesus' claim is that he is in the place of highest authority. We see that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So what is he doing with that authority like today, like right now, like like at 9.35 this morning, where, where we are right now. Well, we're going to look at the past, the present, and the future. We'll, we'll, start, we'll start with the past. Philippians 2, 8 through 10. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
So think about how this played out in the year 33 AD. Resurrection Sunday takes place, and Jesus exits the tomb in newness of life, in resurrection power. He's going to be with his disciples over the course of 40 days. And then he's going to go to the village of Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And in plain sight of all of his disciples, he is going to rise up in the air until he is enveloped by a cloud. And then they don't see him physically anymore. What happens then? What happens then is that God the Father gives Jesus a hero's welcome. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he has all authority over the universe. Now, there on the screens is a little sliver of the universe, a little slice of the universe that scientists say is 13.5 billion light years wide. The biblical claim and Jesus' claim is that he is Lord of that 13.5 billion light years worth of space and that he is Lord of whatever is beyond that space. He is the Lord of reality. He's the Lord of eternity. He's the Lord of, of everything. God the Father has enthroned Jesus at the place of great honor. And so Jesus' present position is pictured for us in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Well, the Lord is God the Father. God the Father says to David's Lord, who is Jesus, the Messiah. God the Father says to Jesus, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until, key word, until, that is a really, really important word, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What it says is that the rule of Jesus has begun, but there is a gap in time, there is a space in time from the time that Jesus is enthroned at the, as king to the time when all of his enemies shall be vanquished. That's the period that we're in right now. He's begun to rule as king. All his enemies have not been vanquished yet. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in a place where evil happens and where bad things take place. Sit at my right hand. Your kingdom begins until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That means there are enemies right now. There is evil right now. There are difficulties right now. There is tragedy right now. But that time will come where all that's taken care of. We're in that intervening time right now. So what's Jesus' position in the present? Well, the expression of Jesus' rule comes primarily, primarily through the church. Um, we see that in Acts chapter 2. What's the first thing that the enthroned Jesus did for the people who named him as Lord? He sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent to the 120. The 3,000 came to know Christ on the day of Pentecost. They were people of different languages and tongues and nationalities. Those 3,000 went, went outward to the various nations of the world. So what Jesus is doing right now, his agenda right now, is to exercise his rule 
through the church and through his providential acts of grace. That's what he does right now. So let me be clear, at this point in history, the global population is over 7 billion and roughly one-third of the global population names the name of Christ. I don't know what percentage of that one-third is actually personally following Christ. I don't think anybody but God knows that. But the agenda of the risen Christ is to exercise His rule through the church, which is scattered around the world. What's interesting is that if you you look at the sociology of religions today, what you realize is that the Christian church is the most dispersed of all the religions around the world. Hinduism primarily concentrated in one place. Islam very concentrated in about three places. Buddhism, Judaism, highly concentrated. Christianity, highly dispersed around the world. And what Jesus' agenda is, is to rule primarily through the church. Well, how does that work? It works when we pray. It works when we engage in local ministries of service. It it works as we engage in evangelism and in discipleship. It works as we distribute Bibles where there are no Bibles. It works as we start programs for addicts and unwed mothers. It works as we create shelter for human trafficking victims. Uh, it works as we are hands, the hands and feet of Christ around the world. His agenda is that He would rule through the church as it is dispersed in various different places around the world. Well, that means that, um, that, means that Jesus has to minister to us. Well, how does He minister to us? Well, Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. Jesus is the shepherd, we're his sheep. He's the husband, we're the bride. He's the head, we're the body. He's the high priest, we are his worshipers. He's the cornerstone, we're the building. He's the last Adam, we're the new humanity. These are seven pictures, they're figures of speech. There's seven diverse ways that Jesus ministers to us. These these seven ways that are mentioned in the New Testament of Jesus' ministry to the church. And if you sum up those seven, what do you get? What you get is that Jesus is intensely interested in empowering His people to make a difference in the world through prayer, discipleship, service, and so on. Let me, let me give you just two very quick examples of how this is taking place. I read this morning a report by the Oxford Center for Mission Studies, located in Oxford, England. And uh, this is a massive report. The last chapter of the report talks about who around the world is ministering to women who are caught up in human trafficking, in sex trafficking. And this study uh, talked about the fact that the church is really the only institution around the world that has the value system to do this. And why do they have the value system to do this? It all goes back to Ephesians chapter 5 and the idea of Jesus presenting to the Father the church in her purity, her radiant beauty. Based upon that vision, the Oxford Center for Mission Studies, 
was saying the church globally has this value. We must minister to women who are caught up in the human trafficking and the sex trade. That's just one, one example among many of how the church around the world has targeted a specific need. Widows and orphans, that's the category we're talking about and are ministering to that need. One more example. Georgetown University released a study this week. And the study was, well, I'll just read you the, the title. Religion in America is worth $1.2 trillion to the U.S. economy. More than Google and Apple combined. Now, camp on that for just a second. That's an astonishing study. Because while religion can, in this study, could include many, many different things, Christianity makes up by far the majority of what was mentioned in that study. So, what value does Christianity have to our country? Well, for starters, one of the things it does is it revs up the economy, tangibly, practically. What would we say if Google went away? That's bad. What would we say if Apple went away? How am I going to keep up with my Facebook posts? That's bad. Well, what would happen if the church went away in America? Implication of this study is there would be serious implications for jobs, for the economy within our country. Just one example of how the church is the vehicle through whom Christ rules within our culture. Um, but this implies something. And the thing that it implies is that God is going then to allow suffering to continue for a time. Jesus is not going to stop every rogue nation. He's not. Jesus is not going to destroy every immoral and unethical candidate. Jesus is not going to stop every deadly bullet. He's not going to stop every protest or every uprising. Jesus' agenda is to reach into this fallen world and lead as many people as he can to the way of life in Christ. But that means people have to be free, and that means people are going to make bad free will decisions. And sometimes societies will make bad decisions. All right, that's the present. What's Jesus doing in the present? He's ruling through his church. What is he doing in the future? In the future, he will right every wrong, and he will solve the problem of suffering. Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is, dipped, he has a, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Well, this is a description of Jesus at his second coming. Notice when Jesus came the first time, he came as a humble child to identify with the human race. Notice when Jesus comes a second time, he is coming as a mighty warrior who will right every wrong and who will solve the problem of suffering once and for all. And here's what's really cool. 
you will be there. You will be there. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's you. That's you. Now, why are you there? Well, you're part of the global body of Christ. And Jesus' agenda during this present age is to mediate his rule through you as you are a person of integrity on your job, as you serve in the community, as you perform acts of prayer that push back the frontiers of darkness. You were used by him during your life. Now you will come with him at his second coming to observe what Jesus does to fully and finally create victory over ultimate evil. So you might ask, well, what, what gives Jesus the right to do this? Uh, why, not, why not Buddha? Why not Muhammad? Why not, why not Joseph Smith? Well, because Jesus is the one who's got the power. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What gives Jesus the right to be the one who will right every wrong and solve the problem of suffering? Um, he's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He is above every other spiritual force and spiritual power. On the grand scale, he will do this. Now, uh, notice what else he does. He, he does that globally. He does that, like, universally. But guess what happens to you? Um, he prepares a house for you. In my father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Zero in on that word house. It's not just like a big house to kick back, turn on your big widescreen TV, and veg out and be a couch potato. The term house in that context means a headquarters a place from which you do something purposeful. So it's like what he's saying is, I'm creating for you a headquarters for purpose in heaven. The purpose that you long for as a human being, I am preparing a headquarters for that, for that purpose so that in heaven for eternity, you will go out and you will do cool things for all eternity. We talk about, you know, the heavenly rest. Rest in peace. It's not going to be a rest. Rest means something different in the Old and New Testament. It is a peaceful purposefulness that will drive you with excitement for all eternity. So, so let's go back to the original question. Original question is, okay, if the world is spinning out of control and it's so messy, where is Jesus in all this? Where is Jesus in all this? Well, the answer, biblically, is he's, he's in heaven. He intends to rule through his church and through acts of providence, and he will solve the problem of suffering once for all 
in the future at his return. But that doesn't answer the entire question, does it? (laughs) Because I hear a lot of people who say, but why are they so bad in the last hundred years? Like in the last hundred years, over a quarter of a billion, that's billion with a B, people have been killed only through totalitarian dictatorships. 11 million in Germany under Hitler. 65 million under Stalin in Russia. 78 million under German Mao in China. I mean, that, that, it's hard to even conceive of that level of human suffering. Why does that kind of thing take place? Why has it gotten so much worse? And why so much worse in the past 20 years? What's the operative principle? Why does that happen? A lot of people ask that question. Well, there is a clear biblical reason for this. The Bible teaches a cultural reality. And the cultural reality is that societies tend to unravel as people in those societies suppress the truth. Okay, there it is. Societies tend to unravel as people in those societies suppress the truth. In other words, God doesn't allow societies just to do evil with no consequences. What God does is He turns those cultures over to the normal and natural consequences of their, of their sin. Romans 1.18 is a, an encapsulated form of that principle. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now stop there for a second. He's not, he's not talking about angry judgment. This is not the angry judgment that you feel when your teenage daughter mouths off at you. You know that angry judgment. I, I was watching a video clip. My, my son took a lot of our, our, our videos and he, and he digitized them and put them into a file. And so I was watching one of these a couple of days ago. And we were on a a vacation in Red River, New Mexico. And all four of our kids are so angry at each other. They're so angry at each other. And they're playing baseball. And I was pretty sure that somebody's going to get hurt. (laughs) And, And so I saw, then I heard me sort of get a little edgy and start getting angry at the kids for being angry at each other. That's not the anger that God's talking about here. He's not talking about the anger you, you feel when somebody like tailgates you in your car. Or it's, it's not God like casting down violent judgment like Zeus throwing down a lightning bolt. And sometimes I hear particularly some evangelical preachers say, well, that, that's what, that, what just happens, the judgment of God. That's not what this concept means in Romans 1.18. The concept means that God allows cultures to reap the normal and natural consequences of their sin. If God says, you want to go down that path? Okay. You can go down that path. It's not going to be pretty. He allows cultures to reap the normal, natural consequences of their sins. It's like God is the ultimate love and logic parent, that if you do certain things, these consequences take place. The wrath of God is the outflowing 
of those normal and natural consequences as, as, as nations, as cultures, as the culture of a family turns its back on God and begins to suppress the truth. Continue with, with, verse, with verse 18. Um, let, me, let me back up one. So, it, so what verse 18 says is this, people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. People perceive God, but they, they stuff down, they crush the truth about God. And in verse 21, they become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts became darkened, claiming to be wise, they become fools. A culture suppresses truth about God, and now foolish thinking creeps in. So let me, let me give you some examples of foolish thinking. And I don't know, I might, I might even offend somebody by, by saying this, because these days people get offended by all sorts of things, but let me tell you what happened at Princeton University. My, both my grandfather and my father graduated from Princeton University. My grandfather in 1904 and my father in 1952. Many of my growing up memories are of going to Princeton for alumni meetings as a kid. In fact, my dad bought me a Beatles 45 RPM record at the Princeton bookstore. I have a big memory of that. Princeton started off as a strongly evangelical institution and it ministered to the Native Americans on the East Coast. Over the past 60 years, Princeton has definitely suppressed the truth about God. And um, we know like one outcome took place this past month. So here's the, here's the, the Daily Mail. This is a London-based newspaper. Princeton orders staff to stop using the term man as part of a ban on gendered words to make college more inclusive, which means you can't use the term man on campus, a banished word. You cannot use the word man and wife. You cannot use the word man-made. You cannot word, use the word freshman. That's not, that's not correct. The word forefather is out because that implies a male-dominated culture and it might be offensive to somebody for any number of reasons. And since Princeton is an Ivy League institution and a trendsetter, other colleges like Marquette in Milwaukee, University of North Carolina and others have adopted similar policies. Now, there is an obvious biological truth. There is male and there is female. That's an obvious truth. There is, a, there, there is male and female. Princeton is suppressing truth about that obvious, demonstrable, scientific idea. Professing to become wise, they become fools. And here's where it gets interesting. University of Michigan um, had the same thing come up. No use of the term man. You get to choose what pronoun you want to be called by. 
It could be he, she, zee, zer, here, mir, and so on. So a significant student, number of students decided they wanted to do something that was a little, little counter to that, and it went, it went viral. One student said, uh, okay, I can choose my pronoun. I want to be called His Majesty. <laughs> Another said, I want to be called Her Grace. Another said, I want to be called Her Exalted Highness. Another said, I want to be called His Excellency. Another said, I want to be called her eminence. And the profs at the University of Michigan were horrified by this because it went completely counter to their intention. The thing continued to go viral, and the University of Michigan professors, at least as of Thursday, were obligated by the university to use these in referring to the individual students within their classes. Huh, your grace? Tell me what your thoughts are on that. Your eminence, I would like to know a little bit more about this. They become incredibly creative at coming up with these terms. Professing to be wise, they have become fools. And when you read the pushback from people who are Princeton alums, they're using the F word, the fool word. This is foolish. This is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? <clears throat> um, the trend is, the, is sort of the tip of the iceberg. Montclair University, um, all these universities are starting to put together courses to not be offensive. So here's Montclair University. This is a course, how to watch television. Um, Skidmore, the sociology of Miley Cyrus. There's actually another one um, at Wellesley called the sociology of Lady Gaga. So these courses are multiplying based upon the different rock stars. Uh, University of California, Irvine, science from superheroes to global warming. I found another one this morning, learning from YouTube uh, at Pitzer College. I, I could teach one I'm wasting time on YouTube. Um, so I'm using this as an illustration of fundamental truth. When a culture suppresses basic truths about God, that culture begins to reap the normal and natural consequences of that suppression of truth and the, and the principle that kicks in is professing to be wise. I've suppressed this truth. I'm wise in the suppression of this truth. They have become fools. And what, what happens is, is that um, th this, this is true of a university culture, of a family culture. It's true of nations. Um, I read the book Wild Swans a, a while ago. Wild Swans has a discussion of the Little Red Book in China by Mao Zedong. Now, I have read portions of this book. It's not a, not a page turner, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll just tell you that. It's not a page turner. But the portion, but what, these are pious, communist platitudes. And for a time, this is the only book allowed in the entire country. Pious, communist platitudes. And what the book Wild Swans demonstrated, and Young Chang also wrote the book on Mao Zedong, the biography. What she demonstrated was these wonderful, pious, communist platitudes were not being lived out by the Chinese Communist Party. And people who questioned those pious, communist platitudes were killed. 78 million of them.
professing to be wise. We got this book. This book is going to change the culture. Professing to be wise. They became fools. Now, all I'm saying is, the Bible teaches that when societies push down the truth, a natural outcome begins to take place. And the natural outcome is that people encounter, they encounter the normal and natural consequences of their sin. Um, and, and you can never tell where it's going to go. You can never tell where it's going to go. So t- take Target, for instance. Target had the idea that they would, that they would do this. Uh, gender-neutral bathrooms. You probably heard about this. So what, what happened? What happened? Well, I don't know how much you've read about this or heard about this, but little kids, girls, were harmed. Predatory men saw this as an opportunity. They were harmed. Um, profits plummeted. Stock prices plummeted. The CEO said, we're holding the line on principle. Professing to be wise, professing to be wise, they become fools. As massive amounts of, of value have, have been yanked out of that stock, professing to be wise, they become fools. Any other CEO would have been fired. Maybe he has been fired, but, but he's n- not when I read this this past week. So back to the original question. Why is it that God allows societies to plunge into messiness and chaos? And the reason is this. For people to make genuine decisions about their eternal destiny, they must have free will. they got to have free will. And God allows people to make trillions of free will decisions. What that means is people are going to make bad decisions, and societies may devolve. They may, they may become, become difficult and difficult to, to, to live in. So the role of the church is to be the oasis in the desert for the thirsty. The role of the church is to be the healing hospital for the hurting. The role of the church is to be the safe harbor in the storm. Is the church going to usher in a utopia? Well, there's a theological position that says yes. It's called post-millennialism. That's mostly gone by the wayside because we would say it's hypothesis contrary to fact. Uh, It has not happened in the 20th century. doesn't look like it's going to happen ever. Post-millennials, post-millennialism taught that, um, yeah, the church is going to usher in a millennium, I mean, a, a utopia. There are also liberal Protestants, even, this is an oxymoron, but liberal evangelicals who say the church ought to usher in a utopia. That's what Jesus said would happen. Jesus is going to eliminate suffering when he comes back. Until then, Jesus mediates his rule through the church which is a pilgrim people. His church is an exile people. His church is a countercultural people. His church is a people who ministers underground and cross-culturally and in creative ways, being a hospital for the hurting, being a, a, a safe harbor for people in the storm. So let's move to the application part. Um, four things that are implied by this. Number one, how should, well, how should we live? That's the application part. Some commands for thriving in chaos. Number one, 
Start with your world. In the sovereignty of God, you are where you are. And that means, for most of you, you are in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, USA, in the sovereignty of God. Don't wish you were in Denver. Don't wish you were in LA or San Francisco or New York, because you could do so much more if you were there. You're not there. You are here. So you bloom in this place where God has you planted. And that means, number one, you start with your family. You start with your family. You invest in your family. If you've got young kids, invest in those young kids. If you're a grandparent and you've got grandchildren, you invest in them. You start at home. You start with your family. That's what Jesus said. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. You start in your Jerusalem. That's your home. You also start in your job. In the sovereignty of God, you went down the educational path, you went down, you got the degrees you, went, you, you had, or maybe went into some other profession without a degree, but in the sovereignty of God, you're there. So what does that mean? That means you, you seek to be an agent of Jesus' rule on your job. What does that mean? That means that you show integrity on the job. Maybe it means you pray for your coworkers. Maybe it means when the opportunities come up, you may say something about your faith. Uh, maybe that means that you use your God-given strengths and your creativity to add value to your division or your department. Maybe it means that you use your Christ-centered worldview to create a different culture uh, on, and part of your team. What it means is that you start with your family, you start with your job, and you say, how can I be an agent of Jesus' rule right here, right now, in this place? And let him do it to you. It may not be flashy, but it might be flashy. It may not seem significant to you, but it may seem significant to others who look to you for leadership. When I was at the Gallup organization this past summer, I found out that about 73% of the American workforce hates their job. They hate their job. So if you are a coworker who is a breath of fresh air for somebody else, that's part of you being an agent of Jesus' rule in that place. You start there. Uh, secondly, um, remember the role of the church in difficult times. Remember the role of the church in difficult times. Um, your role is to be a light in the context of community. Um, not pulled out of community, but a, but a light in the context of a vibrant Christian community. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2.15. Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You know, there was, there was somebody in, in, when I was in high school who took the time to play tennis with me on a fall afternoon and I wanted so much to have him tell me the way to Christ. I didn't even know how to ask the question. I'm just like a 16-year-old junior, I'm thinking, how do I even ask this question? So I remained silent. He probably thought, this guy could care less about spiritual things. 
inside. I'm going, give me something. Give me something. I'm so glad he did that. I, I, wish I wish I knew where he was right now to say thanks. Because that act of kindness was pivotal in my spiritual, my spiritual growth. Um, that guy, that guy was part of a Christian community in Winnetka, Illinois, when I was growing up. And I knew he was part of a community, and I knew that community was a place where I needed to be. So you live a life of integrity in the world, and God will use that in ways that you don't see and in ways that you do see. Just trust that if you're living in community as a person of integrity, God is going to use that. Um, you represent Jesus 24-7. You don't get to punch out. You don't get to say, ah, I'm off the clock, bam, I'm punched out. And so you accept that call of being on call 24-7. One of the things that, that that means is that no matter who wins the election, no matter who runs the country, no matter what happens to our country, you are still an agent of Jesus' rule in this family that he's got you in, in the job that you're in, in the city that you're in, in the state that you're in, in the country that you're in, in the hemisphere you're in, in the world that you're in. You're okay. You're okay. Now, I think we can steward our vote, and I'll talk about that in two weeks, but at least just, just know that if you are living in a vibrant Christian community as a person of integrity, you will be used by the risen Christ. Here's the third thing that you can do. Third thing is deal with your expectations. Um, cultures inevitably decay. Romans 1.18 says that. After the United States Constitution was approved, a well-known woman in Philadelphia came up to Benjamin Franklin and said, Dr. Franklin, what sort of a government have you given to us? And Franklin said, a constitutional republic, madam, if you can keep it. Constitutional republics are fragile. It's easy for them to dissolve and to fall apart. I hope and pray our country flourishes for 100, 200, 500 years to come. I don't know whether that'll happen. But your expectations ought to be this. First Timothy 4.1, the Spirit says that in the latter de days, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Second Timothy 3.1 says, in the last days, difficult times will come. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, and so on. Uh, all I'm saying is deal with your expectations. Um, I hope for the best, but my serenity is not based on what happens in the political process. Now, I say that. Sometimes it is, okay? Sometimes I have to say, Lord, I confess I have a bad attitude right now. But ultimately, your serenity is not based on the outcome of a political process. And then finally, remember your role during the end times. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Your role during these, these, this season of history is to see yourself as the sent one 
of the risen Christ. And that means usually that you are the sent one into your job, into your family, into the city where God has you living. Look, I love being a pastor. I love it. But my job is not more important than your job. It's not. Your job is every bit as important as my job. And so what I would say to you is be the sent one in your home. Be the sent one on your job. And let God lead you into a place where you see the fruits of your work, wherever that is. Now, as we make the transition toward communion, what I would like for you to do is just spend a little bit of time um, doing business with God and just, just say to Him, Lord, um, show me how I can be the instrument of your rule on my job. Let's just spend a few minutes praying over that, and then we'll begin to take communion. Let's have some moments of silence and pray over that. Father, in your sovereignty and by your grace, we are in different parts of the city, different parts of the state. Lord, by your sovereignty and by your grace, we have been called into specific professions, specific jobs, specific careers. Father, I pray that you would allow us vision and creativity for how we can represent you in those places. Lord, some of those places, it's going to be easy to represent you. In some places, it's going to be really dicey. And in some places, humanly speaking, impossible. So Jesus, we just, we just ask that you would give each person here wisdom and discernment about how they can represent you that way. Lord, sometimes we're the answer to the problem of suffering. Because we can... We can minister to one person who is in pain and alleviate that pain just a bit or maybe a lot so father i pray that you would give us the vision to be instruments of your of your healing grace in this community as we take communion lord jesus we thank you for your body for your blood and for the forgiveness that's in christ amen